Welcome to Kessler Foundation's 2017 Traumatic Brain Injury Consumer Conference, Moving Forward, Overcoming Obstacles and Improving Quality of Life. This conference is hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System, a collaborative effort of Kessler Foundation, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. The Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System is funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Grant number H133A120030. This podcast was created and produced by Joan Bank Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, September 29th, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center in West Orange, New Jersey. I'm going to be telling you a little bit about TBI research at Kessler Foundation, where we are and what we're doing. So I'd like to start with a little bit of the history because we talk about this when we have potential donors visit, when we have you know, people visit for various reasons, but I realize that I never really discuss it when we have consumers here. Kessler started back in the 1940s with Henry H. Kessler. Henry H. Kessler's family is actually still involved. His son is probably about, I think he's about 83 years old, lives in Virginia. He does still come up to visit now and then. And his grandson was on the Kessler Foundation board recently. So they're still very active in the organization. Kessler Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research. And our mission, the reason we do everything we do, is to change the lives of people with disabilities. We want to improve people's quality of life. Our goal is to help people return to their homes, their communities, and the workplace. And Henry H. Kessler is pictured over on the right. He started Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in that little white building that you see in the middle of the two big buildings on the, in, in front of it and on the back of it. So it was just a little you know, eight-bed facility. And what he realized when people were coming home from the war is that they were coming home with these orthopedic injuries. They were having surgery and they didn't know how to adjust to their new life. And that's how he really, he really emphasized the importance of rehabilitation and helping people adjust to their new abilities, what they can do and what they are going to need to work a little bit harder to figure out how to do. As a result, Kessler Foundation was founded, and we were founded as a result of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. So Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation started as purely a clinical facility doing rehabilitation clinical care. Kessler Foundation was an offshoot, a research department developed within Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and we were all one company until the late 1990s when Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation went for-profit and Kessler Foundation broke off as a separate organization and is not for profit. We still work very, very closely together even though we're still, we're, we are two different organizations. Our employees are in the halls of each other's buildings. We work together as teams and very often you can't even tell that the people in the room work for two different organizations because we work together all the time. The lines of TBI research that have developed at Kessler Foundation are largely a direct impact of our experience with the clinicians and with the patients, recognizing what needs to be done, what needs to be developed to, I, to help our patients most optimally. So the lines of research that we have ongoing now are cognitive rehabilitation, emotional processing, employment, the impact of feedback on learning, which is another mechanism to improve learning and memory, metacognition, sleep, caregiver health, 
help, health, sorry, and virtual reality. And I'm going to be going through these different lines of research quickly um, and hopefully very in an interesting way. So I apologize if it gets a little dull, but I'm hoping that it's a little more interesting than it has been in the past. So we're going to start with cognitive rehabilitation. Cognitive rehabilitation, as so many of you know, is very common in inpatient as well as outpatient settings. However, the procedures that therapists use in regard to their cognitive rehabilitation tend to not be grounded in empirical evidence. What that means is there's no research support that tells the therapist that what they're doing is actually working. They're working on their gut instinct. That gut instinct is very important, and when I talk to clinicians, I emphasize that their gut instinct and their feelings are very important because they have been in the field, many of them have been in the field for a long time, and you learn through experience. However, insurance companies don't emphasize the importance of their gut instincts. They want to know that something works, and that's where we come in. We're trying to provide the empirical evidence that tells insurance companies that the, what works and what doesn't work. And we're making sure the clinicians know what has research support and what doesn't. Because in order to get these services reimbursed, they have to have research support. We're in an era now where th these treatments all need to be supported by research evidence. So what we've done to address this is we're conducting randomized clinical trials. A randomized clinical trial is a specific type of research study that provides the highest level of efficacy data. It can tell us whether a treatment works or it doesn't. And the, the goal is to impact thinking, learning, and memory within our uh, cognitive rehabilitation domain. So one of the protocols we've been working on for a very long time is the modified story memory technique. This is a 10-session treatment program. Many of you have probably participated in this research. Patients undergo training twice a week for five weeks for 30 to 90 minutes each. There are no medications. It's purely behavioral. We're teaching skills. We're teaching patients different ways of learning information. And what we sought to figure out is, does it work? So we do assessments before they begin treatment and after they end treatment. And these assessments are multifaceted. So we do learning and memory tests where you're sitting in a quiet room, we're reading you lists of words, and you're remembering as much as you can. We do neuroimaging to see how the brain is reacting, how the brain has changed. And then we do assessments of daily life. So the new skills that we're teaching you, are they impacting your daily life? And what we found is that after treatment, learning improves. On our hour tests, we see that people improve in their ability to learn new information. And on this, <clears throat> on this figure, you see in the, the blue line is the treatment group. And what that's showing is that from baseline, which is on the left side of the screen, to post-treatment, which is immediate on the right side of the screen, people are showing an improvement in their ability to learn and remember information. Folks that are not treated, that's the red line, show no change. So we're showing this really nice improvement in a person's ability to learn and remember new information. We're also showing that people's everyday lives are changing, they're improving. So the treatment group is pictured through the, the blue bar here, and what that shows is that there's almost a 50% improvement in someone's evaluation of how they're, how they're doing in their daily life, how their cognition is impacting their daily life, and things are getting better, whereas the control group shows a small treatment effect. So the other thing we're showing is that the brain is behaving differently. So this is, and this is very interesting because it's only a 10-session treatment program. There's nothing 
there, there are no medications, nothing invasive. It's purely behavioral. We're teaching skills. We're teaching people how to learn information differently. And what we're showing is that after treatment, the treatment group is using more visual areas to learn information, and that's exactly what we were teaching in the treatment. So we're showing that this treatment impacts learning and memory at the behavioral level. So it's on our tests of memory functioning, they're able to learn and remember more information. It's impacting their daily life, so that they're reporting that their cognition is less of a problem in conducting their daily life activities. And it's at the level of the brain. We're showing that the brain is using more spatial areas to learn and remember things, and those areas of the brain were not used previously. Another area of work that we have been pursuing is emotional processing. Now, I, my line of work is the cognitive rehabilitation, so I don't want to um, I don't want you to think I'm an expert in all of these areas. I do the cognitive rehabilitation work, and other scientists do all head up all of these different areas. So two of our scientists have been focusing in on emotional processing. Um, emotional processing has been shown to be challenging post-traumatic post brain injury and something that truly does impact a person's daily life. Dr. Sanjay Gupta did a nice segment on our emotional processing work, um, and I decided to show you that segment today because I think that segment describes it much better than I ever could. Let me click out of the survey. And I'm sorry, but you do have to view the advertisement. This is not an endorsement. Oh, it did say skip ad, though. What if you couldn't tell whether your spouse was happy or sad? You didn't know when your kids were frightened or when your boss was angry. It made it pretty tough to navigate the world. Well, that is the reality for many people with MS. We are now learning that MS can damage the parts of the brain that allow us to recognize emotions in other people. What makes this even tougher is that many patients don't realize they're having a problem. So on the screen, we have two different faces. So first, I'd like you to take a look at the face on the left. Can you tell me which emotion the man on the left is making? Okay, well, um, his lips are pursed. Margaret Balter is training to do something most of us do without thinking. Think angry. That's good, right? Looking at a face and reading the emotion. I'm going to say um, he's afraid of something. He's fearful. That's good. MS researcher Dr. Helen Genova says most patients do not realize when they're losing this ability. People with MS tend to know if they have memory problems. They tend to know if their thinking isn't as fast as it used to be, their processing speed. Um, but this is not a problem that they're aware of. They may be aware that they're having interpersonal issues, such as more arguments with their spouse, for example, problems relating to people at work, but they don't know why. Using an MRI machine, Dr. Genova watches the brains of patients like Margaret as they try to identify the six fundamental human emotions. Happiness, sadness, fear, anger, surprise, disgust. And those six emotions are, are universal. No matter the culture, no matter the person, they all understand what an angry face looks like, understands what a sad face looks like. Patients are shown two faces in quick succession and must decide if both faces show the same emotion or different ones. So if anger followed by sad, they would respond different. If it's anger followed by anger, they would respond the same. Dr. Genova and her colleague, Jean Langenfelder, have developed a 12-week training program teaching patients to focus on particular parts of the face. So for example, in sad, the downturned lips, 
in anger. It would be a lot of tension between the eyebrows and, and a tight-lipped face. So now what I'd like you to do, see if you can mimic a fearful face of anger. After training, patients do better. Their brains haven't been repaired, but they've learned a workaround. Very good. So now the features of fear, you've got those words done wrong. Very good. The problem is since patients don't know there's anything wrong, doctors have to be the ones to bring it up. But this work is still relatively new, and doctors themselves are still learning about it. I think the key is for first the doctors to be aware that this is a problem. I think if you walked into a neurologist's office tomorrow and said, are you aware of this, they, they would probably say no. Dr. Schoenberg's <laughs> work will raise the awareness so MS patients can get the help they need. Once they understand the problem, there are um, a few things that they can do. Number one, I would say they shouldn't isolate themselves so that they are around other people constantly because it's sort of like a use it or lose it type of a thing. The less you are with other people, uh, the greater this problem could become. With Everyday Health, I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Be well. So while this video focused on someone who had MS, the same research is being conducted in persons with TBI with very similar outcomes in that the treatment that um, Dr. Genova and Dr. Langenfelder are working on and developing has shown a significant improvement in a person's ability to interact socially um, and understand and communicate through emotional expression. Um, so what we've been showing is that 100% of persons with TBI and MS who have been treated with this program are showing a substantial improvement on both standardized testing and in terms of their daily life functioning. And this is a very active line of research um, that continues and will be continuing. In addition to that, you saw in the video that they were doing scanning pre and post intervention. And what we're showing is increased activation post-treatment. So once again, this study is highlighting how the plasticity of the human brain. We used to think that it, it would take a very long time to change how the brain is functioning, but in fact it's not. It doesn't. The, the brain adapts very, very quickly, and in just this short period of time, when people are processing emotional information, they're showing increased activity in the frontal regions, which is the, the area of the brain close to the front of your head, um, which is largely due to attentional and organizational skills. And they're also showing increased activation in parietal regions, particularly the fusiform gyrus. The fusiform gyrus is an area of the brain that's involved in facial processing. So in just this short period of time, we're showing that not only are there behavioral changes and improvement in someone's ability to interact emotionally and understand emotional expression, but there are also changes at the level of the brain. And that's, that's pretty, pretty astounding. Another area of work that we've recently started we are currently seeking funding for this area and we're hoping to be able to continue it in the future, is an intervention that's designed to help people pursue meaningful employment. This is, the, the protocol is called Skills to Pay the Bills and it was developed through the Department of Labor. It was developed really for adolescents um, and in reviewing the protocol, it looked like something that might be helpful for someone who has a traumatic brain injury and is trying to get back to the workplace. Now, it's not your typical workplace training where you do interviewing skills, you learn about developing a CV or a resume. It's more 
it, it focuses more on skills that are, you really would put to use within the workplace, but also in other environments. So skills like communication, teamwork, networking, problem solving, and professionalism. And what we've been showing is that of the people who have completed this treatment, 100% of them have reported decrease in depression. They have shown an ability to recognize a lie more efficiently. They've shown ability to recognize social conditions. So things like lies, 66% of them showed an increased ability to recognize sarcasm when it was being used, um, to recognize a figure of speech. And these are subtle conversational, these are conversational subtleties that while you may be, while it's not essential that you know how to recognize sarcasm or recognize a figure of speech, if you don't recognize them, social interaction is going to be much more difficult for you. And you're going to feel less comfortable, whether it's a work environment or any other environment. So these are things, subtle skills that are really, really important to someone's ability to function in these different environments. And we're really happy when we started seeing these results. 100% of the patients that we've seen, that we've put through the protocol so far, have been pleased with their experience. They really enjoyed it. And this is 12 sessions once a week in a group format. Skills training. Um, and what we're looking at are the pre-post changes. Now our ultimate goal is to see people return to work. That's not something that we've been able to look at yet. Our sample hasn't gotten big enough to be able to look at that yet. But that's ultimately where we will be going. Another aspect of our research looks at the impact of feedback on learning. This is a study that's done in our imaging facility. It's a scanning study. And many people ask the clinical significance of it. So you're doing scanning. You're understanding the brain. What's the clinical significance? It has a huge clinical significance. And the reason for that is that we learn through feedback every single day. In our daily life, we learn through feedback. When we're kids, when we're in high school, college, even in our daily life today, we meet somebody new, we interact with them, they give us feedback. And we base our, pre, our, our consequential behaviors on the feedback we've received and whether it was positive or negative. If it's positive, you'll do it again. If it's negative, you won't do it again. This is the basis of therapy. However, there are different types of feedback. So there's monetary feedback. You do a good job, you get a bonus. There are simple, simple checks, checks you're correct or incorrect. Very simple feedback, correct or incorrect. That's a different kind of feedback. There's social feedback. A scowl versus a, um, a smile. There's also delayed feedback and immediate feedback. So for delayed feedback, you think of a child's or college student, adult taking a test. You take the test on Monday, you don't get the test back until the next Monday when you go back to class. That's delayed feedback. However, if you touch a hot stove, you have immediate feedback. Now what we're showing, or what has been shown in the literature, is that these different types of feedback have different neural underpinnings. So there's different neural circuitry that are responsible. What that means is if you had a traumatic brain injury, that traumatic brain injury may impact one type of feedback but not another. That's something that's important for a therapist to know because therapists tend to use the, the feedback that they're most comfortable with. But that's not necessarily the right feedback for a given patient. That's something that's important for them to know so that that can guide their therapy. So this is imaging research that we do here in our imaging center. It seems very scientific. Um, However, it has this huge clinical impact 
that we're only beginning to discover now. And this is some of, that, some, of the, some of the data that we've been collecting. So if you look at this figure, on the left side of the screen, you see immediate feedback. In the middle, you see no feedback. And on the right, you see delayed feedback. And if you look at this orange bar all the way on the right, you see that with delayed feedback, people are improving their learning much, much more. So the delayed feedback is much more useful in this particular pop population. And that's something that as we do this, with bigger samples and we're able to replicate the results, we'll be able to talk to therapists about using delayed feedback more. Metacognition. We talk about cognition all the time. Cognition is what people know, what people think, remembering information, processing information, doing math problems. We all know what cognition is. What's metacognition? This is something that we do all the time. It's thinking about our own thinking. So can I learn and remember that? That's metacognition. I'm thinking about my skills, and I'm evaluating my skills. We do it constantly. It's the basis of self-confidence and self-efficacy. It feeds into whether or not you're going to try something new or you're not, because you think about whether or not you're going to be able to do it. So this is something that's very important in engaging in new skills, particularly when you're learning something new. And after a traumatic brain injury, as all of us know, you have to learn a lot of things all over again. And you're going to be learning for years and years. Therapy doesn't stop when you walk out of the inpatient facility. Most of us continue in outpatient therapy and may do that for years, may leave therapy and come back for therapy later. It's something that you're just going to keep learning. So you need to have an accurate perception as to whether or not what your skills are, what you can do and what you can't do. And metacognition is often impaired following a traumatic brain injury. The problem is that metacognitive deficits often lead to social isolation. Social isolation leads to a host of other problems that really decrease a person's quality of life. So what we have to do is intervene on these metacognitive problems and help people improve their metacognitive skills, be able to evaluate their own functioning a little bit better so that they can get back into a social environment. And interestingly, no treatments are supported by research. So right now, this is a line of work at the foundation where we're looking at metacognitive deficits. And what we're doing is we're scanning. So this is another one of those scanning studies that while it looks very scientific, and it is very scientific, it has these huge clinical implications that can be translated right to clinical care. So we're scanning and evaluating people, and then we're treating them with a metacognitive intervention. And we're trying to improve their ability to understand and evaluate their own thinking. And then we're scanning and evaluating them again. And once again, the goal is to have a new treatment supported by research that's going to improve the quality of lives of persons with disabilities. Sleep. We all know how important sleep is. I'm going to show you a slide that's going to give you data that shows you how important sleep is. One of the things that we're looking at is um, the ability of a medication to improve sleep. And in this study, what we did was put half, half, we had a whole bunch of people with sleep problems. We put half of them on a sleep medication and half of them on a placebo, which is a medication that is so, ultimately has no effect. And what we saw was a very nice improvement in a person's sleep. They were able, they slept more minutes in a given night when they were on the medication than, than, when, than when they were off and that was maintained over time. So we're showing a very nice effect. And this data also showed the importance of sleep. So this figure at the bottom 
These are all different neuropsychological domains, executive functioning, working memory, intelligence. And what this data is showing are very nice improvements in these cognitive domains once they're on medication and they're sleeping better. So we're showing when people are sleeping better, we're showing better executive functioning, better working memory, better overall cognition. So this data shows us that sleep is essentially important to someone's everyday functioning. The other thing to think about, it's important to everybody's everyday functioning, but one thing to think about is someone who's had a traumatic brain injury is undergoing rehabilitation. They're learning new skills. That takes an incredible amount of mental effort and cognition. If you're having a problem sleeping and your cognitive skills are not functioning optimally, you're not going to be able to learn and remember all that new information and you're gonna have trouble. So this is a line of work that also has incredible clinical implications. We all love naps. This is another aspect of this work. I love this study because I love naps, although I never get them. But what this study shows, looking at this blue line in the figure down here, when someone takes a 30-minute nap and then they re-engage in, in a task, and this is a simple finger-tapping task, it's a motor task, but we've done it with cognitive tasks as well, we see this very nice improvement in performance after the nap. So when someone complains that you're taking a nap in the middle of the day, you can tell them that it really has a, an important effect and it's just to optimize my functioning later in the day. Because this is true of all of us. Hmm? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It really is incredible how important sleep is to everyday functioning. So I would highly recommend if you're having any difficulty sleeping, talk about it with your physician and try to get on something that's going to help regulate your sleep patterns so you can function better during the day. Caregivers. We all know how important caregivers are to the functioning of the persons with TBI. We also all know how stressful caregiving is. It's a very challenging situation where you're providing support for someone else who's struggling with their own stuff. So one of the things that has been neglected over the years is caring for the caregiver, giving them the support they need to, improve, to allow them to function optimally, which in turn is going to allow their significant other to, or their family member to function optimally. And this is really in an effort to prevent caregiver burnout. So one of the clinical trials that we've been running looks at support for the caregiver and how support for the caregiver helps their quality of life and in turn helps the person's the person with traumatic brain injury. And in the part of this is a support group. So there, I think it's a once a month support group that they come and they talk with other caregivers as well as there's a facilitator of the group to talk about strategies, um, to give each other support and talk about things that help in, in each other's everyday lives. There's a phone support aspect to it. So it's not just a once a month, you come and you leave and we don't think about each other. There's a, there's a phone support aspect to it so that they're in contact throughout the month. And then there are educational materials, and this is an example of those materials. These are tip cards. And tip cards are given to the families depending on what they need. Not everybody needs the same type of information. So whether you have a child who has a traumatic brain injury versus a spouse, that's a very different situation. Whether you're struggling with depression or maybe you're struggling with fatigue, two very different symptoms with very different ways of intervening to improve your quality of life. What we're showing is that after treatment, 
people are reporting an increased ability to look up resources. They're finding the group very beneficial. The check-ins, the phone check-ins, they're finding very beneficial. They would like to have more groups. Um, groups are fantastic because they do provide that emotional support. The patients provide just as much, if not more, support for each other than the therapists. Scheduling is difficult, so we're talking about other ways to potentially do these groups, perhaps virtually. The handouts they're getting, they're telling us are very helpful. The topics are good, and they are looking to attend more community groups. In addition, we are seeing all these changes post-treatment. We're seeing that a person's depression is improving. They're reporting more social support. They have less obstacles to their participation and they're able to engage. Their health is improving and the caregiver grief that they're experiencing is decreasing over time. So we're showing these nice improvements. This is another study that's really, we're really finishing up a pilot study and where it's going, we don't really know yet, but this has very important implications for the caregiver and the family. I'm sorry, go ahead. We don't educate them. I'm sorry? We don't educate them. Is that your question? No. So they're like family members or Yep, exactly. Yes, they're not professional caregivers. Okay, and then are they um, primarily for TBI patients or? They're primarily TBI because it's a TBI study. That doesn't mean that the implications are only for caregivers of persons with TBI. We think they're much, much more, it's much more general than that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. Yes. No problem. Who I think is here somewhere. I saw her. There she is. She's written back. I'm going to put a plug in. It was awesome. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's good to hear. That's great. Andrea is one of our gems, and I'm very, I'm very fortunate. We have, <laughs> I have a fantastic staff. I mean, you've seen Angela kind of run this conference from beginning to end, and has done an incredible job. And those are some of the scientists sitting in the back um, who do a lot of this research. As I said, I only do the cognition stuff. I don't do all of this but they do a fabulous job. So I'm really very, very fortunate. And the brain injury community is very fortunate to have all these folks working on this, on this stuff. All right, last thing I'm gonna talk about and then everybody can go home, WonderWorks. This is the, the application of technology to cognitive rehabilitation. So this is a new avenue of work. As technology continues to develop, we wanna find interesting ways to apply it. This is an opportunity to make cognitive rehabilitation more engaging. So this was a development grant from the federal government, and it uses virtual reality to make cognitive rehab a little bit more fun. This particular program focuses on executive functioning, 
particularly task switching and multitasking. So this is an example. I know you, you don't know exactly what task switching and multitasking is, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So task switching is when you're doing one thing, you have to switch and do another task and then go back to the original task. Happens all the time. It's a very important aspect of daily life. Sometimes, often, after a traumatic brain injury, someone will try to do that and they'll get lost. Although, or they'll get stuck in one task and not be able to switch. It's very disconcerting, very disruptive to, to everyday life. And this is one of the, this is a program that we're developing. This is led by Dr. Kirk, who's a scientist in um, the traumatic brain injury lab to try to intervene in task switching. These are really fun tasks. They're on a computer. The goal of putting them on a computer rather than in a head-mounted display, you've probably seen on the news all those really cool programs where you're in a head-mounted display and you see virtual reality all around you. Those are awesome. The problem with them is they're upwards of $25,000 each. So a clinician, a rehabilitation facility, they can't afford that. So while we might be able to do the research, is totally impractical in terms of getting it into clinical use. This is on a computer with a mouse, a normal computer, mouse, compu the keyboard, the monitor. That's it, $2,000 in equipment and it's a program. And what they're teaching is switching back and forth to different tasks, everyday life tasks. So up here, you have a photocopier in a file room. There's a shredder over here. And your task is to either shred something or file it or shred, file, or copy, um, and it goes back and forth. So you're going from one task to another, and at the same time, you're monitoring something in the corner of the screen. The tasks start out simple, they get more and more difficult. So it's really challenging your task switching abilities. This is another task switching task where you're watching a, a stop watch here, and you have to hit the button when it counts down, so you're doing this monitoring task on the bottom. At the same time, you have these wonderkins, these cute little guys up here, and every now and then one is defunct, and you have to get rid of it, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So you're doing two tasks at one time and going back and forth. Over here, you're in an office environment, um, and you're monitoring your alerts on this iPad while you're also watching your keyboard, and there's a phone over here. I'm sorry, you're also watching your monitor. Every once in a while that phone rings and really disrupts your task and throws you off. So you're getting used to doing those two, three things at one time. This is a kitchen environment. So you have a toaster here, you have drinks over here, you have coffee. There's a lot going on, this is a tough one. There's a lot going on in this one. But it's something that's engaging you in everyday life skills in an interactive, interesting format and trying to build those skills so you can function better in your daily life. Everything I've been talking about has been an adult traumatic brain injury. We have a collaboration with Children's Specialized Hospital as well where we're starting many of these studies in pediatric traumatic brain injury. So the emotional processing study is being started in pediatric traumatic brain injury. The memory, two of the memory studies are currently beginning with pediatrics as well as a mindfulness study that looks more at metacognition and building mindfulness skills. On the horizon, what else is coming down the pike? We have new studies under review all the time. One we found out is just funded, and these studies look at different things. So one of the areas we're focusing on is exercise in, to improve cognition, the impact of exercise on cognition. We know in healthy persons that exercise improves cognition. We think it does in traumatic brain injury as well, and we're showing we have some data indicating that, but we want to do more in that domain. STEM is a new cognitive rehabilitation program that has different 
skills. It teaches different skills to facilitate memory functioning with the goal ultimately being that we can provide clinicians with all these different programs and the clinician can use a program that's perfect for the patient that's in front of the clinician at that time. So STEM is a different program that we're trying out. And then we're also trying out other aspects of brain changing, brain building, capacity building, treatment programs to try to improve cognition. We have a lot of funding sources that I, I, I have to thank for all of the confidence that they have in the work that we do. They're both federal sources. So the top two, Nidler and the NIH, are federal sources. Kessler Foundation provides a great deal of our resources. And we also have state and private sources that also fund our research. So I have to always uh, thank them for all of their support. For more information about rehabilitation research at Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.